were gravitational waves produced after the Big Bang? Why didn't the early universe just turn into a black hole? And could you put a bunch of little telescopes on the back of Starlinks? All this and more in this week's question show. It's time for the question show. Your questions, my answers. As always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. Now, we record this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to come join the live show, ask your questions to me, uh, see my follow-up answers, join in overtime as we continue for another hour after the show ends, come to the live show. Now, you want to subscribe to the channel and then you want to click on the notification bell. And then you'll get an email when we do a new episode. I promise. There's no way YouTube is going to let you down. I promise. All right, let's get into the questions. Nun Opiera 7814. Were the gravitational waves produced after the Big Bang stretched like space time when inflation occurred? We've talked about the Big Bang plenty. And of course, the Big Bang is the observation that the universe is becoming less dense over time. And that means that the universe was more dense in the past. And when you take all of the observable universe and you run the clock backwards, you get to a point where all of the observable universe was like the surface of a star. And then if you keep running the universe backwards, there was a time when all of the observable universe was like the core of a star and like fusion was going on inside. And if you keep going, then various fundamental forces appeared in the universe and you keep going back and eventually you reach time zero. We don't know what was before time zero. But when the Big Bang Theory was proposed and tons and tons of independent lines of evidence to support the Big Bang were found, there were a couple of issues. And they're, they're like weird, kind of very subtle issues, but essentially sort of like the shape of the universe isn't exactly what we would expect if we had the Big Bang, the temperature gradients across things in the universe, like parts of the universe should have been close to each other for long periods of time. But for some reason, it's as if they never touched and they were never able to kind of communicate their temperature. And then there's weird exotic particles that should be present in the universe that we don't see. And so in 1980, a cosmologist named Alan Guth came up with a theory called inflation. And what he said was, well, the way you explain all of these problems with the Big Bang is that there was this time in the early universe when the universe expanded a ludicrous amount. So it scaled up by 10 to the power of 78 times in less than a second. And by doing so, you got the flatness of the universe that we see today, that parts of the universe weren't able to communicate their temperatures quickly enough, that it wiped out the possibility of these really weird extreme particles. And we got the universe that we find ourselves in today. Now, there is indirect evidence that this idea of inflation is true. Um, but astronomers would always love to find direct evidence. And so one of the possible forms of direct evidence is gravitational waves. Now we see gravitational waves coming from merging black holes. Astronomers have detected the background gravitational radiation coming from pulsars as supermassive black holes are merging with each other and you're getting these sort of long ocean wave like uh, swells in the background gravitational waves of the universe. But when you think about like enormous events where a lot of mass was moved quickly, inflation sounds like one of them. And so there should be these primordial gravitational waves presence in the universe. 
And astronomers have looked for these things. And so you probably heard this result that happened in 2014 by a telescope called BICEP2. And astronomers reported that they had detected the imprint of the primordial gravitational waves on the cosmic microwave background radiation. I'm not going into all the details because it was, you know, fairly uh, extensive, but essentially, like as the waves were passing through the cosmic microwave radiation, it would change the polarization, and we would see this sort of polarization map in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And they reported that they saw it, but then the Planck consortium using the Planck telescope showed that in fact that was just dust. Once again, dust. And so they didn't get the Nobel Prize. Uh, you might know Brian Keating. He was one of the people behind that research and wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. Um, and so astronomers continue the search for these primordial gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And this would still be an indirect detection. In other words, you're not detecting the gravitational waves directly like the way you do with say LIGO and Virgo where you detect the gravitational waves that are coming from these colliding black holes, you would be detecting the imprint of the gravitational waves in other things. Like maybe when you think about the large scale structure of the universe, there could be some imprint of those gravitational waves in the shapes of galaxy clusters and things like that. But wouldn't it be cool if you could actually detect those things directly? And that's going to be beyond LIGO, that's going to be beyond Virgo, that's going to probably even be beyond the LISA interferometer, which is due to launch in 2035. And that's going to be these three satellites that are in space, they're shooting lasers at each other. And as a gravitational wave passes through, they'll sort of change their shape and then come back together. And they'll be able to detect probably the presence of colliding intermediate mass black holes, and maybe even supermassive black holes, but they won't be able to detect these primordial gravitational waves from inflation. But there is a plan for an even bigger version of LISA called the Big Bang Observatory. And that would be a constellation of probably 12 of those LISA satellites. When you think about how complicated it was to do the three LISAs, you would want a version that is like this, I don't know, 12 sided die that's floating in space, and they're all shooting lasers at each other. And in theory, if this thing ever gets built, like in the 2050s, then it should be sensitive enough to detect the gravitational waves coming from the Big Bang and hopefully the gravitational waves coming from inflation. So I hope you're young. Uh, this probably won't happen during my lifetime, but it could very well be that at some point in the far future, we will directly detect the gravitational waves that came from the beginning of the universe. I'm sure you've noticed the planet name that's appeared above my shoulder, a really cool Star Trek planet name. This is a way for you to vote to tell us which of the stories you thought was the best. Now, unfortunately, I was traveling last week, and so we don't have the vote in real time that I don't know it, but Chad from the future knows what it is. And so he's going to display on the screen what was the winning vote. So we're going to put a different name up through each one of the questions. And so you can just wait till the end of the episode and put in the name of the question or answer that you thought was the best. Rudiger Wolf 9626. If black holes are immensely dense aggregations of matter, how does a black hole differ from the early universe immediately after the Big Bang when the universe was very small and very dense? We get this question all the time. Why didn't the universe just turn into a black hole at the beginning? Like it was as dense as a black hole. Why didn't it just become a black hole? And so to get a black hole, you need regions of over density, you need like, all of the force of a star that is imploding to provide a region of over density where you just try to mash so much energy and so much matter into a tiny place that it turns into a black hole. But 
in the early universe, you had this balance of the forces, of the energy, you may have had high levels of density, but you had everything around it balancing everything, everything out. And so there was no way for it to form into a black hole. You also had this expansion that was going on. And so things were being pulled away from each other too fast to get turned into a black hole. And so even though it feels like yeah, the early universe was just so compressed, it should have just turned into a black hole. There was a lot of other stuff tangled up inside of it, including space time itself, and all of whatever was expanding the universe so quickly that it never got a chance to turn into a black hole. But there is this theory of primordial black holes, that maybe there were regions of over and under density, to the point that you would get these little knots of density that would turn into black holes of every size, black holes with the mass of an atom to black holes with the mass of a galaxy. And they could have all been there in these various over densities, you sort of imagine like this early universe, where you just got like folds in space that were so tight that it was just filled with black holes. And then other places where the density was lower, and so you just didn't get those black holes. And then those black holes were let off into the universe, and have been roaming around ever since. And it could be an explanation for dark matter, it could help explain why we see very massive black holes early on in the universe, and like a lot of other things as well. But this is something that astronomers are still looking for, and they haven't ruled it out. But they also haven't confirmed it. Daniel Verburn, are you able to explain to a layperson how TESS compares to the Kepler mission? So Kepler was one of the flagship missions launched by NASA in the mid 2000s. And it was originally going to go for three and a half years, and it was going to stare at one spot in the sky and look at all of the stars in that region. And it was going to be looking for the transits, the sort of periodic time when a planet passes in front of the star, dims the star ever so briefly, and then they would be able to note that there was some kind of planetary transit and do follow on observations. And it was so sensitive that it would have been able to find Earth sized worlds orbiting around sun like stars within the habitable zone. And unfortunately, the reaction wheels on Kepler uh, failed too early. And so it wasn't able to finish all of the data. And so it wasn't able to find those other Earths. Now, the engineers at NASA were able to come up with this really clever solution that they were able to with one reaction wheel, they were able to use the light pressure of the sun to keep the telescope pointed at a target. And they were able to do sort of temporary observations on red dwarf stars until they weren't able to hold it. they had to look in a different location and then look at more red dwarfs and then look at another location. And so they were able to gather a lot of interesting information about red dwarfs, but they weren't able to find that thing that we want the Earth sized world sun like star habitable zone and Kepler was supposed to be the telescope that was going to do it. So TESS is similar to Kepler. It's also doing the transit method It's looking for planets passing in front of their stars. But it isn't looking at one location. Instead, TESS is looking at the entire sky. It looks at one location for about a month, and then it turns to a different location, it looks at that for about a month, and moves through the northern hemisphere, and then looks at all of the targets in the southern hemisphere. And it, it's instead of looking at one field of view a few degrees across, it's looking at the entire sky, and it's looking for every single star that has planets that are within its capability. But while Kepler had a very large telescope, I forget the exact number, like over a meter, TESS has much smaller telescopes designed to catch these very bright transits. So 
you know, different goals, but at the same time, like it's going to be very productive. Kepler found thousands and thousands of exoplanets and Tess is on its way to finding thousands and thousands of exoplanets. So both are very powerful planet hunters in their own way. And Tess is still going strong, doing a great job. And so year after year after year, as it builds up that data, maybe it can get us to that Earth sized world or orbiting around a sun like star, but but who knows? Carl Anderson, could you put a bunch of little interferometer telescopes on the backsides of starlings? We get this question all the time, that if all of the starlings are going to pass in front of objects for astronomers, is there some way that we could use these things for astronomy? And the answer is no, um, for a bunch of reasons. So the first thing is that they're just like, they're not telescopes, they are communication satellites, their job is to send internet to planet Earth. And so they need to maintain an orientation that allows them to transmit data, they need to operate in ways and directions that just aren't good for astronomy. But the like the bigger question is like, could you make a bunch of telescopes act like an interferometer? Like if you have a bunch of satellites, couldn't they all work together? And the answer for that is also no. And the reason is because to make an interferometer, have two telescopes that are separated far apart to be able to act like the baseline, the distance between those two telescopes, you've got to know the distance between those telescopes to within a few hundred nanometers, you've got to maintain that position for as long as you're doing your observations. It is such a complicated challenge that NASA canceled a, a space interferometry mission they're planning to do in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And then they canceled a second mission called the terrestrial planet finder because they just couldn't make this thing come together on budget. And they realized it was just too technically complex. We have interferometers on Earth, like the Event Horizon Telescope, but they're using radio waves. Radio waves are very forgiving. But to do visible light, you need to make your telescope aligned perfectly. And when you think about all these starlings that are just buzzing around the sky, and they're constantly changing the distances, and they're trying to avoid space debris, and they're moving around, and they're moving up and down thanks to the influence of the sun on the atmosphere, like it's just a mess. So unfortunately, no, now you could put a telescope on a Starlink, you know, maybe something that is a few centimeters across. And there's plenty of good science that can be done with a telescope that size. And I'm sure the astronomical community could come up with something really clever if SpaceX was willing to put some standard little telescope onto the back of every single Starlink and agreed to send all of that data back down to Earth. In fact, Elon Musk promised me that he would. Um, he said uh, back when they were first planning out Starlinks that that one of the things that they would do is help astronomers with this constellation. So it, time to make that happen, Elon. Uh, let's see if at some point in the future, they can come up with some kind of little telescope that you can attach to a Starlink that then an astronomer can control because it's a space telescope, like there's lots of value. And some really clever ideas have been developed to use very small telescopes in space. Imagine if there was 40,000 little telescopes that anybody could control astronomers could control do science. Um, that would be great. So how's that coming? Asylum pleading. May I please know curiosity that nags me since your last interview, you spoke that most meteorites fell in the ocean regarding Venus, is it possible that Venusian soil is on Luna or Mars? 
So you're asking, is it possible that a meteorite was kicked off of Venus and is somewhere on Earth or maybe is somewhere on the moon or is somewhere on Mars? And it is theoretically possible. No, it is inevitable that there are meteorites from Venus in other places in the solar system. At some point in the ancient past, a gigantic object could have crashed into Venus. In fact, Venus is flipped upside down. Venus rotates very, very slowly, it has a very weird behavior. And so one of the big possibilities that could have caused that was some gigantic impact in the ancient past. And if it was like something like say this, the kind of impact that caused the moon, a Mars sized object crashing into Venus, then that would have thrown debris out into the solar system. But the kinds of impacts that can send debris on a more regular basis, you need a lower gravity well and Venus has a gigantic gravity well it has the same kind of gravity well that Earth does. Um, we don't find a lot of Earth meteorites out there in the solar system, although they're out there. I mean, we know that chunks of Earth were found in the moon. <laughs> that at some point a asteroid hit Earth blasted material to the moon, and then another asteroid hit that mixed it up. And then an Apollo astronaut grabbed that and brought it back to Earth. So this kinds of stuff have happened. But so far, we have not found any bits of Venus anywhere on Earth. We haven't found it in any of the lunar samples. And we haven't seen anything that we would know on Mars, although, it, you know, we don't have great technology. But like, this is why we have to explore more, we have to spend more time, we have to have a permanent base on the moon where astronauts are walking out and collecting lunar samples and bringing them back to their mass spectrometer, and they're examining the samples and they're going, Oh, this one, this is a little piece of Venus. This is a little piece of Mercury. How cool would that be? So we just need more data, we need more places that we are collecting samples to find them. Mention, have you ever been duped by a bogus discovery? I'm going to say yes. Uh, it happens less now than it did in the past. So like when I was a little baby science communicator many years ago, I had a head filled with science fiction, Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, all that kind of stuff. And that makes my ability to spot keywords was very related to science fiction. And so if I saw things like wormholes, or uh, warp drives, things like that, you know, I would jump on those stories because I thought they were really cool. And I wanted to talk about them. And then I would write up a story about how astronomers think they found a wormhole and blah, blah, blah. And then a bunch of seasoned astrophysicists would slap my wrist and go no Fraser that there's no evidence that this is true. This is just a simulation. This is like a clever, this isn't even a clever idea. Um, and you learn slowly over time and you watch as ideas don't pan out. And so now I think about the kinds of stuff that we report on at universe today, you know, I see a, a story about like a wormhole in a, in a journal. I'm like, Nope, not interested. You know, that's bait. I have occasionally walked into like uh, not realizing that there was like a larger machine that was in the process of attempting to dupe astronomers. I mean, dupe is not the, it's not the best way. So like, like imagine you have a scientist that comes up with a discovery or writes a paper, whatever. And then the press officer sends out a press release. And it's even gone through a journal and it's been peer reviewed. And yet there's something wrong with it. And later on, someone has to do a retraction of the story. People pile on and say that it's wrong. And we reported it. 
and we have to go back. Um, a good example actually is the BICEP2 discovery where uh, back in 2014, astronomers announced that they had discovered the influence of the primordial gravitational waves in the cosmic microwave background radiation. And they announced it and everybody was excited because this was proof of inflation. And then the folks from the Planck satellite team a few months later came out and said, Nope, it's just dust. And then the people who announced the results from BICEP2 had to retract them, they would have won the Nobel Prize, but then they had to retract the results. And, uh, you know, we reported that they said what they found. And so I think now I'm a lot more cagey about how I report stuff, you know, I use a lot of the might may could would should um, words, possibly, uh, theoretically, astronomers are reporting, um, you fall into this pattern um, as you report stuff. And it's inevitable. It's like, if you don't want to get your wrist slapped, if you want to report things accurately, with excitement and enthusiasm without trying to sort of say more than what is, uh, you have to sort of use your words in a certain way. So it is always a process. I think I'm a lot better now than I was in the past, I'm a lot more seasoned, um, but hopefully still enthusiastic and open minded. And uh, I'm always looking for really cool ideas to report and let you know about. And I think I'm getting better at that. Like I think now, the kinds of stories that we're finding at universe today, the kinds of stories that I'm like, I hope that when you watch an episode of space bites, most of it is completely new to you. Like you probably haven't heard any of the stories that we're talking about, or maybe one or two. And that's just because we're doing so much journalism with every story that we put out. And every now and then, one of them is bogus, and we get sucked into it. Tom V. I've been having a hard time understanding how a Dyson sphere wouldn't just slide along its axis and crash. Did you confirm that an actual sphere would be unstable? Yes, an actual Dyson sphere would be unstable. That if you had a sphere, a rigid sphere that you put around a star, it would no longer be in orbit. It would be rigid. When you think about like something that is in orbit around the Earth, it's flying around on its own. But if you actually built a solid ring around the Earth, well, then no part of it is sort of being kept in this balance, and it's just going to drift in and crash into the Earth. And if you had a rigid sphere around the sun, it would just drift in, it would be unstable, and it would crash into the sun, and it would destroy your Dyson sphere. And, and like Dyson knew that. And so in fact, a Dyson sphere, you know, the new term that you'll might hear is a Dyson swarm. And so we are already building our Dyson Swarm. When you think about the James Webb Space Telescope, it is a satellite that is orbiting around the sun. I mean, really, it's orbiting the Earth Sun L2 Lagrange point, but it is orbiting the sun, it is collecting solar power onto its panels. And so it's blocking light that would have reached space, it's converting it into infrared radiation through its sun shield. And then you think about all of the other satellites that are out there, the SOHO and there's Kino Day and the Mars missions, like there is like tiny little bits of the sun are being blocked and used for various purposes. And over time, we will do more and more of that. And eventually, we'll get to some point where we're like, hey, wait, we ran out of sunlight. We use every single photon that is coming from the sun and we are intercepting it from getting out into space. And at that point, we will have completed our Dyson swarm.
And that will be stable. And so you can imagine, like maybe it doesn't make sense to have everything be exactly at the same orbit. Maybe you have some things that are a little bit farther, some things that are a little bit closer, and they're all kind of orbiting in these interlocking shells that are overlapping in ways that block all of the light coming from the sun. You know, people always say that's ridiculous, right? We will never build a Dyson sphere. Well, maybe not. But sort of one of two things are going to happen. Either we are going to run out of ideas to use energy for. We will go, nah, that's enough energy. We've, but we haven't run out yet in 10,000 years. Like if you look back all the way through 10,000 years of human history, we are on this smooth exponential growth curve of our use of energy. And it is perfectly reasonable to think that exponential growth curve is actually an S curve. And then we will reach the peak of our energy usage and then it will flatten out. And then we will just go for millions of years and we will never use any more energy. No problem. I'm completely open to that possibility. And so then whatever that number of satellites are, and then no more, that's how much of a Dyson sphere we will have built a Dyson swarm, sorry. Um, the other possibility is that we will run out of photons, that we will just keep building and building and we will dismantle Mercury and we'll dismantle Venus and we will just keep throwing up satellites and O'Neill cylinders and cool space orbital stuff until we've used up every single photon that's coming from the sun. It's gonna be one or the other. Um, and my money is on running out of photons that we will always come up with new ideas for how to use the photons. If you want to support the work we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. Your support lets us have a minimum of ads and no sponsorship messages. Patrons get no ads on universetoday.com for life. Want the extra parts of the live stream that aren't in this edited version? You can sign up for a special patron-only podcast feed and get the overtime segments as well as other special behind-the-scenes episodes, including our monthly patron-only question show. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to the recent newcomers, James Hillhouse, Shanur Habib, Lars, JC DeWecker, Stefan Nye, Peter Barozzi, DJFM, Charlie Bull Jr., Mark Anstis, and Michael Hellman. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Nulled, have we found aliens yet? Not that I'm aware of. Ms. Pond, has James Webb already shown its full potential? Absolutely not. Um, we are about 18 months into observations with Webb so far. We finished cycle one, which started in, in July 2022 and finished in 23. We're partway through cycle two. And now astronomers are putting in their proposals for cycle three, year three. And I think like the, the deadline is due. So if you're an astronomer watching this, don't watch this, finish off your proposal for cycle three. It's estimated that Webb is going to last four decades. 20 years, 25 years, and who knows, like, that's the expected lifetime. But who knows what kind of technology we'll have to try and keep it going longer than that. And right now, astronomers are going after the low hanging fruit, they're, they're doing observations of very well known planetary systems, they're trying to do surveys of galaxies seen, you know, close to the beginning of the universe, they're looking in the Carina Nebula and the Orion Nebula and the Ring Nebula, like all these things that are very famous. But over time, they are able to bring this telescope to bear on a lot of the biggest mysteries in the universe. And some of these mysteries are going to take multiple years to finally uncover. And then at the same time, with like with all instruments, astronomers are learning how to use it better. They're able to make better observations, they're learning new 
tricks and techniques to be able to pull more data out of this telescope. When I think of just about our reporting, like we did that one year of web um, that we released back in the summer. And that was sort of based on all the reporting that we had done for the first year. And like, I can, I can just feel that next year's episode is going to be double the length. Like it'll probably be a two hour episode where we talk about all of the things that happened in year two of web. Is that, is this how this is going to work? That we'll just be, we'll add one more hour for every year that web is operational. We've seen rogue planets floating in the Orion Nebula. We've seen Herbig Harrow objects like brand new stars, protostars forming. We've seen the surface of Ganymede with James Webb. Oh, it just it goes on and on and on. And we're getting a much more nuanced understanding of those big galaxies seen at the beginning of the universe that they're not the universe breakers. Instead, there's like a lot of really interesting physics and cosmology and stuff that's going on to make these happen. So I couldn't be happier. And I know that we're that we're just at the beginning of what's you know, if I think about the timeline, think about Hubble, right? Hubble just got better and better and better with age. And some of its best observations are still being made right now. Uh, Curiosity just reached its 4000th day on Mars. And it's still going strong. So nope, the best is yet to come. Drew D, why can't we use two black holes to tear apart one black hole and see what's inside? Because nothing can escape a black hole, not even a black hole. And you can't use a black hole to get anything to escape a black hole. If you bring a black hole too close to another black hole, those two black holes are going to merge. And you will have not learned anything except what the mass of the two black holes were. So unfortunately, nothing can escape a black hole. Like, there's no way around this. Like, what if I take a pole and I just stick the pole into the black hole? Like, what then can I poke around? Like, but that to know. Nothing you could do. There's there's no way around it. It's just like it's like like that's the law is how they work. And uh, you know who knows? Maybe at some point in the far far future, we'll come up with some really clever technique to be able to probe what's going on inside the event horizon of a black hole. But no, like like one of the ideas that I think is really cool is like as black holes spin they spin faster and faster and faster. And eventually, they're spinning at relativistic speeds. And Einstein predicted what is the fastest possible limit that a black hole can spin. And you know, it depends on the size of the black hole, but but roughly, you're kind of approaching the speed of light on the surface of the black hole. And as the black hole is spinning, it flattens out or the event horizon flattens out and flattens out. But just at the point where whatever it is that's inside the black hole is going to be revealed because the event horizon is flattening out because of its spin, that stops it, that it can't get so fast. They call that a naked singularity. And you can't get a naked singularity because the laws of physics will not allow a black hole to spin so fast that it can reveal its singularity. It puts on the brakes and prevents us from being able to find out any information about what's going on inside. We just can't do it. Andre Fure, if we could mine a neutron star, what would we get? So when we think about a neutron star, it is the result of all of this pressure from all of these outer layers of the star crashing down inward, and you get this incredibly complex, compact object. I mean, it's not complex, it's more simple. Because when you take every single atom, right, atoms have a certain number of protons, neutrons, and electrons, and then that enormous pressure just takes the protons and the electrons and smushes them together into neutrons. And so now you just have neutrons. But that's not exactly right, because a neutron star can still have layers. So you could have, say, 
at the center of the neutron star, you are going to have this neutron star material, but then you're going to have other layers on top of that. You can even get like earthquakes, star quakes on neutron stars where layers of it are kind of shifting around and collapsing down and cooling down. And so if you were to mine a neutron star, it sort of depends on what part, like a neutron star could have like other forms of degenerate matter on the outside. It's almost like it's surrounded by like a faint atmosphere of white dwarf. And so you would have very more of like a white dwarf substance if you were able to pull that off, like very compacted, like crystalline carbon, like diamond on the outside of the thing. But then if you sort of go deeper into it, then yeah, you're getting into the neutron stuff and it's neutrons. Now, obviously, you know, each teaspoon weighs as much as I don't know, some million tons. Um, but if you pull it away from the neutron star, then you just have neutrons and actually like individual neutrons will decay in a very short period of time, but they don't because they're under this enormous gravitational pressure part of the neutron star. But it's just like the neutrons that are part of atoms. So if you could mine a neutron star, you would just get atoms and then they would evaporate and be gone. They would decay. Moon toads, thoughts on what we found in Orion's belt, the Jupiter sized objects. I mean, no additional information has been found uh, since we did this reporting about these rogue planets found inside the Orion Nebula. But now my sort of filters for things to look for in space news are really looking for rogue planets, ways of detecting rogue planets, what could explain the rogue planets. So there was a paper that came out today, and we're, I'm, we're going to be reporting on this on Universe Today, is the question of like, are there any double planets out there? Because like here in the solar system, Pluto and Charon are a double world. The two of them orbit around a common center of gravity that is outside of Pluto. Unlike say the moon and earth, like the moon is orbiting around the earth, but the point where the moon and the earth are orbiting is inside the earth. And so you could theoretically have two planets that are perfectly orbiting around each other going around some kind of star. But astronomers have never found one of these. Now there's been some examples of really heavy planets orbiting around each other. And in this Orion Nebula with these rogue planets, 9% of these rogue planets are in binary objects. So you've got two Jupiter mass objects that are orbiting around each other. And yet we haven't found those in exoplanets, like because a binary planet, a double planet would give off a very interesting signature, right? So it's going around the star. Sometimes you're seeing the planets side by side. Sometimes you're seeing the planets lined up and you would get this different light curve. And so far, I, I don't know of a single example of a, of a double planet that's been detected. When they found 9% of these rogue planets in binary pairs, it just made you wonder like, where are all the double planets? And so I've been obsessed about this for the last couple of days thinking about this. I am so excited about all the discoveries of rogue planets are being made. When Nancy Grace Roman comes online 2027, it's going to be a rogue planet hunter. It's going to be able to see tons and tons of micro lensing events and give us a really good understanding of how many of those rogue planets that are out there and not just the Jupiter mass ones, but maybe ones with the mass of the earth. And it also should be able to even find primordial black holes, which is one of those other things that I've been talking about that Nancy Grace Roman is going to be the telescope that's going to find many of these things and give us a much better sense of how much of this is out there in the universe. So you are in the, in the very early stages of the mystery, the unfolding mystery of rogue planets. Bagel's Tintin, do you ever get bored of your job? No. Um, 
And it's weird. Like, I, like hmm. my job is sometimes hard. Uh, and it's gotten a little harder in the last couple of months. And it's mostly self-inflicted because I've been trying to figure out how to do better reporting at Universe Today for us to be mostly reporting on stories that nobody else is finding. And that takes a lot of digging and it's very time consuming for me to find these stories and queue them up for the writing team. And it's very rewarding as we're like, yeah, we, you know, we got the scoop again. And then we watch a couple of weeks later when other people start to report the same thing that we've been reporting at Universe Today. Um, so the job is hard, but it's all very self-inflicted. You know, like I'm the one who's deciding that I want to do things better. Um, but when it just comes to the job itself, no. And like I've had chances to find out whether or not this is actually the career that I want. Uh, about six years ago, I joined an offshoot of the XPRIZE to work on a sort of standalone version called Hero X. And the company still exists and they do a lot of really cool NASA related challenges. How do you poop in space? How do we get rid of gases and various materials off of spacecraft that are going to Mars and such? And I had budget and I had a team and I got to build software exactly the way that I wanted to. And I was working with really good friends and I was working on a project that I found really meaningful. And all I could think about was getting back to universe today. You know, I gave them two years. I committed that I would be able to help them for two years, but what I really want to do is get back to the universe today. So I'm being it for life. There's a feeling that you get. I hope like some of you who are, are good at your jobs, I like to think I'm good at my job, um, but the, there's this feeling that you get as you sort of reach a later stage in your career where you feel like you're good at what you do. And that's very satisfying. It feels very good to be good at what you do and to know how you can make it better and how you can sort of continue to improve. And it's sort of this very self-referential, very sort of self-fulfilling of entertainment. And if you don't have that sort of growing capability and wisdom and all of that, uh, then I can see how you, it would feel very boring. But for me, because there's so much new stuff all the time, so many challenges for me to take on, uh, and it just keeps going faster and faster and faster, I am endlessly entertained. No, no. I mean, like, I wish you knew me in person. I don't know. Chad knows what I'm like because he's there um, watching or, you know, my wife or, you know, my friends and stuff. But like, I'm like this in real life. I'm just really lucky you guys want to hear me talk about space because, you know, I'm sort of, I don't have to talk to my wife all the time about space, except she asks all the time. And so I do. But anyway, yeah, no, I love my job. And I hope you do too. And, I, and if you don't, I hope you find a job that you love. L Stizzle, talk about Triton, please. Okay. I, like, I don't need a lot of excuse to talk about Triton, but I will. Uh, Triton is the largest moon of Neptune. And what's kind of crazy about Triton is that it orbits backwards from the rest of the large moons in the solar system. When you think about the direction that the moon orbits, the direction that Mars moons orbits, the direction that all of the big moons around Jupiter orbit, Triton is going backwards. And that's weird. And so it was believed that Triton was a captured Kuiper Belt object that came from you know, some three body interaction with some other object and was able to pull it into its own orbit, but it's going backwards from the rest of them. That's cool. But when Voyager 2 did its flyby of Neptune in 1989, it saw just the barest hint of some kind of geysers on the surface of Triton. And this is before we knew about the geysers on Enceladus, before we knew about the geysers on Europa. This was the first place that astronomers think that there might be geysers. 
but it is so far away from the sun. It's got these weird tidal interactions that are happening with Neptune. It's probably a, you know, has a thick shell of ice surrounding a water ocean underneath surrounding a solid core, but it is much farther away from the sun. So it doesn't receive as much illumination on its surface. So maybe its surface is a lot more pristine than other places in the solar system. So I think like Triton is now in the top two, three places that we need to go to next. And I'm like, I'm not the only person who believes it's like, you know, back when NASA was picking its next set of missions, they had the two Venus missions, the IO mission, and the Triton mission. I'm like, so Triton hit the short list. And in the new decadal survey where planetary scientists gave their priorities to NASA, Triton was one of the big priorities. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of the next big flagship missions that we see coming from NASA is a mission to Triton to finally answer this question about where did it come from? How did it end up in this weird orbit? And does it have geysers on the surface? Can we learn about the interior of Triton by flying through these geysers? I have so many questions. Bruce Devereaux, do you have a biggest disappointment with something not being funded or not going ahead, what you still think was a missed opportunity? Yeah, I have two missions. I actually did an episode where I thought about the like the episodes that I was saddest that never flew. And so there's two. One was called the Terrestrial Planet Finder. And this was invisible light interferometer. It was going to be like maybe four telescopes flying together in formation. And then each of the telescopes was going to be beaming the the signal, the light coming from the telescope to this central telescope that was going to use interferometry to mix the signals from all of those telescopes. And what you would end up with is an interferometer that was the size of the baseline of those telescopes. So if the telescopes were hundreds of meters apart from each other, and like maybe some kind of like, like cross in the sky or something, then it would be the equivalent in terms of baseline, in terms of resolution of a telescope that is like 100 meters across, which is a ludicrously large telescope for us to build a space telescope. And yet, it would be theoretically possible. And so the idea was originally floated around like the year 2000. And NASA was planning to do a first mission called the Space Interferometry Mission, where they're going to test out this technique, and then they were going to follow up with the Terrestrial Planet Finder. And it's right there in the name, right? It would image terrestrial planets. You would know thanks to the transit method where a planet was, and then you would turn the terrestrial planet finder at that world. And you know, we talk about how telescopes like James Webb and other individual telescopes have to use a coronagraph to be able to block the light from the star so they can reveal the planets that are nearby. And you need, you know, it's about a 10 billion times brightness. So the brightness of the star compared to the planet you know, the planet is 10 billion times dimmer than the star, you need some way to block the star. And so with coronagraphs, you have to put like some kind of object in front of the star within the telescope. But if you have multiple telescopes that are looking at the same object from far apart, they can use this technique called nulling. And where essentially, they're both looking at the same object from different perspectives. And you can take the light from the star and cancel it out. And you're left with the planet. And then they would be able to observe the light coming from the planet and they could tell what its atmosphere was, what's on its surface, maybe detect the presence of, of cities and all kinds of crazy stuff. But it never flew. Um, and then the other one was called the Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter. And this was going to be a 
ion engine powered flagship mission that would have a fission reactor on board. So it would have a nuclear reactor that is powering an ion engine, which would give it a lot of electricity, it would give it a lot of thrust. And then it would be able to fly to each one of Jupiter's moons and go into orbit. So it would like go go to Io, go into orbit around Io, and then it would go to Callisto and go into orbit around Callisto and go into orbit around Europa. We got those flipped around and then go into orbit around Ganymede. They would have enough to be able to get into orbit around the moon, make all of its observations, then get out and go to the next one and just be able to move from world to world um, in a way that we just never, you know, we've never seen any mission do that. And I think, you know, that was going to be overly complicated. And now we have like the Europa Clipper, which is just going to do Europa. And we also have the, we have the Juno mission and we have the juice mission that's going to the moons. And I think with that, there was sort of like this understanding that trying to spend too much time in the highly radiative environment around Jupiter is just too dangerous, too hard on a spacecraft. It's hard to harden the spacecraft to the point that it can handle that kind of environment. And what they learned with Juno is let's just do flybys. Most of the time you're really far away from Jupiter and then you just come in, do a quick flyby and then get back out, process the data, send back home to Earth and come do another flyby. And now Juno is doing these flybys of all the various moons of Jupiter and they're great. And Europa Clipper is going to be doing the same thing. Stay away from Jupiter, drop in, do your science, fly back away, and just sort of do that until um, you've got all of your science. So I understand why they canceled the the GMO mission. I understand why they canceled the Terrestrial Planet Finder mission, but I still want to see a visible light space interferometer. All right, that was a question show. Thank you, everyone who put your questions in the YouTube comments, everyone who joined us for the live show. A reminder, we record this show every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to join the show, ask your questions, get them answered, stick around for overtime, which runs much longer than the edited down version that you're watching. We do this every Monday at 5. Now, subscribe to the channel, click on the notification bell, and that's how you will get a guaranteed 100% guaranteed notification from YouTube when the live show is about to start. I'm going to talk about some media that I really like. But first, I would like to thank our patrons. Thanks to David Richards, Mark Ansis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofi-Lara, Dustin Cable, Vlad Shiplin, Modso, George, David Giltonet, Andrew M. Gross, Jeremy Mattern, Josh Schultz, Jordan Young, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our other supporters on Patreon. People always ask me what television shows that they should watch that are going to be really good. And, you know, there's like a lot of the stuff that we talk about, The Expanse, For All Mankind, like stuff that's very common, but there's some more obscure stuff that I really like. And if I had to choose my absolute favorite thing that I've seen in the recent years, and I'm sure I've used that superlative too much, that would be Love, Death, and Robots, which is sort of an anthology show that's on Netflix. Each season is about 10 short-ish animated episodes. And they are taking, in some cases, classic science fiction stories, and they're animating them. And some of the stories are absolutely incredible. I remember we were watching like season one, I thought was great. Season two was even better. But I just like remember season three came out and my wife and I were watching this. And at one point, I just turned around like, I can't believe This is what we're watching right now. It was so good. So if you haven't already, um, like, do you, do you remember like, like reading 
collections of science fiction short stories by like a bunch of different authors. You get like a new, like a magazine would come and there'd be like a bunch of short stories in it, or you would buy like an, you know, an anthology of a bunch of short stories. And so you get like an interesting collection of, of short, really cool ideas. And that's what these are. They're all so good. Everyone's a banger. Every single episode in this uh, Love, Death and Robots is terrific. Like, and especially like they just get better and better and better. I'm so glad that these exist. And if you haven't already watched it, run, don't walk and watch Love, Death and Robots. All right, we'll see you next week.